Hello, I'm Mark Sweet. On this episode of I'm a Gun, I'm reviving the Air Fighters feature. This feature is named after Air Fighters Comics, published by Hillman back in the Golden Age. Air Fighters featured a group of separate comic serials, all starring aviator adventurers, characters like Airboy, the Iron Ace, Sky Wolf, and Black Angel. I use that tag on episodes in which I talk about some of my favorite aviator characters, regardless of publication house. And on this episode, I'd like to recap and comment on one of my favorite Blackhawk stories. Blackhawk, or the Blackhawks, were of course that long-running team of adventurers debuting smack dab in the golden age of comics. In Military Comics, number one, cover dated August 1941 and published by Quality. This multinational team of aviators, made up of leader and Polish-American Blackhawk, the Danish Hendrickson, Swedish Olaf, Chinese Chop Chop, the Pole Stanislaus, Andre from France, and American Chuck battled Nazis and other adversaries for over a decade in military comics and in their own title, written and drawn by the likes of Will Eisner, Chuck Quadera, Reed Crandall, and Dick Dillon, before being acquired by DC Comics, which continued to publish Blackhawk continuously well into the 60s. And now the Blackhawks and their various creative teams kept it at bay for what must have been much longer than expected. Time eventually started to catch up with the Blackhawks. There were only so many leftover Nazis to fight and so many subpar dime-a-dozen world conquerors out there. By the mid-1960s, DC Editorial started making some changes, first tinkering with the Blackhawks' iconic black or blue leather outfits, swapping them out for some red and green uniforms. And then, 1967, the unthinkable. To bolster what must have been some pretty dismal sales numbers, the Blackhawks were thrown into an association with some uncle rip-off spy organization called GEORGE, an acronym for the Group for Extermination of Organizations of Revenge, Greed, and evil, boy, and given new, appalling, superhero-like identities. Blackhawk himself remained relatively unscathed. He kept his name and the green and red outfit. But Chop Chop became Dr. Hands, the what else martial arts expert. Hendrickson is the weapons master. Stanislaus is the woeful Iron Man wannabe golden centurion. Olaf looks like a freaking goon as the leaper. Andre just can't pull off Mala's look as Monsieur Machine. And most dreadful is Chuck, who wears this loose-fitting outfit. It's like a pair of pajamas decorated with ears, and he's called The Listener. Now, I'm commenting on this from afar, and maybe I'm being unfair as I've never read a Blackhawk comic from this era. Five years ago, I wouldn't have touched these with a ten-foot pole. But now, uh, I have to admit I'm a little curious about this train wreck of an era. Maybe like a rubbernecker driving slowly by a, an accident? Now Blackhawk the title limped along this way for about a year, and this mess was inherited by editor Dick Giordano, somewhat newly arrived to DC from comics publisher Charlton. Now I'm not sure if Giordano was a longtime fan of the property, or just 
maybe sense the injustice or at least the awkwardness of the whole Black Hawk team as superheroes thing. But I sense his hand tightest around the detonator that is issue number 242 of Black Hawk, Giordano's first on the title as editor. This issue blows up this particular, peculiar era of misadventures for the Black Knights, and it happens to be one of my very favorite Black Hawk stories. So, up next, a little recap and commentary of Black Hawk number 242. Will Black Hawk capture some of the Sabotage gang? Can Black Hawk and Chuck escape this appalling situation? Be sure to see The Iron Monster, the fourth action chapter of Black Hawk, at this theater next week. Okay, Black Hawk number 242, cover dated September 1968. And as established, edited by Dick Giordano, for this story called My Brother, My Enemy, an attempt to return the Black Hawks to greatness, or at the very least to right a listing ship. Giordano called on Bob Haney, who'd written, to this point, many issues of the series, including the entire Junk Heap Heroes run. That's their title, not mine. Haney, for this story, scripted over a plot by a very young Marv Wolfman in his very first DC credit, possibly his first credit for any publisher. In drawing the story, Pat Boyette, who followed Giordano over from Charlton, where he worked on, among other things, Peacemaker. Boyette was a great choice to draw Blackhawk as he was equally adept illustrating expressive figures and military equipment, both real and imaginary. Boyette drew the cover to this issue, too, and I gotta assume, based on contemporary letters columns, that the few remaining Blackhawk readers must have been thrilled to see the Blackhawk squadron running from a smoking ruin, pistols in hand, dressed head to toe in blue and black leather, while in the background a steel, full-helmeted Nazi wearing an iron cross looks on. Story begins in the dead of night outside George headquarters near Washington, D.C. A group of masked, helmeted soldiers bearing the Iron Cross skulk around. These guys are creepy, especially in the low light with the heavy inking by Boyette. Their masks resemble bandages, and that, along with their mostly green outfits, make them look like Nazi negative men from some Earth X version of the Doom Patrol. Well, these Nazi negative men report to their leader, the helmeted Nazi from the cover, that they've laid and primed a thermocharge in the absence of the facility's sentries, all of whom have been drugged. The leader gives the word, and ba-boom! George's underground headquarters is no more. On a Caribbean island, the vacationing Blackhawks, for some reason, try to check in with their bosses. That's a vacationing no-no. But the communications expert, Chuck, here called The Listener for, thankfully, the last time, can't reach HQ. This troubles Blackhawk, who rounds up the troops, cuts the vacation short, and heads back stateside to find a giant smoking crater where George headquarters used to be. Blackhawk and crew lament that all their equipment, all their fighting costumes are gone. Who could have done this, they ask? Who? 
Well, it turns out the explosion didn't destroy everything. A film projector was left, perfectly intact. So when the group finds a suitable screening room, they watch a filmed confession. The Nazi in the Iron Mask introduces himself as Black Mask. And if his helmet wasn't frightening enough, we see that in place of a right hand, he's got a long sword blade. He calls the destruction of George H.Q. but a warning specifically aimed at the Blackhawks. A warning etched with a stylus of flame. Still in the dark about Black Mask's motives, but not taking too kindly to threats, the Blackhawks dig their old leather threads out of storage. Though at least Hendrickson complains that they don't fit like they used to. Of course, the uniforms must have shrunk, right? And this is actually an interesting choice here. Obviously, Giordano and crew were desperate to get the Blackhawks back to a classic look and mission, trashing Ratsies while wearing black leather. Uh, but they didn't go for a complete reboot. Uh, this was at a time before the reboot was such a common occurrence in comics. You could, you could call the Silver Age introduction of characters like the Flash, Green Lantern, and the Atom reboots. Uh, but this story here is ten years or so too late. To catch that wave, though, there are slight liberties taken in this story that don't exactly jibe with Will Eisner and Chuck Quidera's original Blackhawk stories. Giordano, Wolfman, and Haney pretty much just soldier on, maintaining recent continuity and building off of it. And uh, I have to think that it was somewhat satisfying to be able to so visibly blow up George and all those names and identities... Goodbye, the Leaper. Goodbye, Golden Centurion. Well, without a clear next move, the Blackhawks check in with one final piece of equipment, the Hawk Kite, which is a giant floating two-headed hawk, which I guess they'd used to get around when recently. And they do catch up to it, expecting it to be piloted by Zinda Blake, Lady Blackhawk. But inside the hawk kite, they find Zinda recovering from an assault by a man wearing a black mask. They find a message etched into a panel, perhaps by an arm-mounted sword, addressed directly to Blackhawk. Rendezvous me, alone, Fort Fear, 1800 hours. Though it's not signed Black Mask, it's signed Jack. Hmm... Andre asks, who's Jack? But uh, by this point, Blackhawk is in deep flashback. Before he led his own private squadron of commandos, the man who would be Blackhawk was just Bart Hawk, the U.S. fighter pilot flying World War II missions alongside his younger brother, Jack. Now, let me just say, I love Blackhawk, but his civilian name, Bart Hawk, really turns my stomach. I really hate it. When the whole Blackhawk team is given a hard reboot in the late 80s by Howard Chaikin, Mike Grell, and others, there are some improvements, I think, but I don't think I appreciate any of them more than renaming Bart Hawk Janos Prochaska and making him Polish rather than American. Well, he's Bart Hawk here, and he was flying a mission with his brother, Jack, back in the day. They were both to pilot TNT-loaded drones, 
at a German target and were to bail out at the last moment. Well, Bart was able to safely eject, but Jack, not so much. As far as Black Hawk has known all these years, Jack was killed when his drone struck its target. But is that true? Black Hawk can't help himself. He has to make that rendezvous alone at this cavernous Fort Fear. Black Hawk, when he arrives, calls out to his brother, and he's answered by Black Mask. Black Hawk is shocked to learn that his kid brother is a horrible villain, but Black Mask is all too willing to share his story. He obviously had survived his bombing run, ejecting at the very last possible second, though not escaping his fall into some icy waters unscathed. Mm -hmm. Something sounds a little familiar about this. He was found disfigured and maimed by the Nazis, nursed back to health. While in his condition, Jack nursed a growing bitterness toward his successful war hero brother. The Nazis outfitted Jack with the mask, the arm blade, and trained him to be the perfect winter soldier. I mean, perfect Nazi warrior and the perfect foil to the new Black Hawk squadron. And just as Black Mask was about to make his debut, the airfield was attacked by the Black Hawks, who just bombed the hell out of the place, and trapping at least Black Mask in a prison of rock, ice, and snow, a prison from which he just recently emerged after a couple of decades. And in the present, with the Nazi cause now lost, Black Mask claims to have gathered fellow bitter outcasts of the world who live for evil and who will go along with the Mask's number one goal to destroy Blackhawk, whom the former Jack considers his chief betrayer. Blackhawk tries to talk his brother down, confessing that he quit the Air Corps over his brother's seeming death and that for every flight he's taken since, he's wished for his own death if it could bring Jack back. Well, Black Mask ain't having it, and he challenges Black Hawk to a sword fight. But Hawk's heart just isn't in it, and Black Mask gains the upper hand. But just as the rest of the Black Hawks catch up, they gang up on the Mask, but he manages to squirm away, telling them that if they want to continue the fight, he'll be waiting at Black Hawk Island. Will Black Hawk's men arrive too late to help him? What is the meaning of this daring attack on the highway? For the amazing answers, see Mystery Fuel, Chapter 7 of Black Hawk, at this theater next week. Well, the Black Hawks make it to their old island headquarters, apparently by sea, as they're seen walking in from the shallow water. They're expecting some kind of ambush, but they're still surprised to see, as soon as they make land, rumbling toward them, a gigantic war wheel. This story's high, studded, rolling tank has been a thorn in the Black Hawk's side for years. And it's so preposterous, but it's also so cool. I daydream sometimes about a Black Hawk movie or what could have been. Apparently Steven Spielberg was interested in the film rights Black Hawk back in the early 80s, and uh, the war wheel would have been so cool to see and hear on the big screen. I can just imagine this soft, distant rumbling getting louder and louder and seeing this 
giant wheel crushing everything in its path. Well, there's really not much handguns can do against the war wheel, so the Blackhawks scatter. Blackhawk himself and Hendrickson, in a nearby cave, stumble upon one of their old weapons, the flying tank. Luckily, the thing still had some gas, and they take off, clipping the war wheel and disabling it before they themselves crash. This is just the rallying point the other Blackhawks need as they peel off their famous war cry, Hawkeye, while routing the remainder of Black Mask's forces. Blackhawk himself, meanwhile, scales the war wheel and finds his brother in the cockpit. And he doesn't hold back this time and gives Black Mask, who's got the wheel moving again, a big sock to the jaw. Blackhawk tackles the mask out of the open cockpit. And there's this great panel where the two of them are momentarily frozen in midair as the war wheel crashes silently into the side of a cliff. Blackhawk hopes against hope that his motionless brother has survived their fall. But it turns out Black Mask was just feigning. And he gives Bart a poke in the shoulder with his arm blade and catches a prearranged evacuation chopper off the island. Blackhawk has one more chance to stop his evil brother, though. He grabs a bazooka from Hendrickson, sights it up, but hesitates. And with a click, the bazooka misfires. Or does it? Could Blackhawk have killed his brother? The bazooka works fine when Hendrickson tries another test shot, but by then it's too late. Black Mask has escaped. And as Blackhawk asks himself if it would have been better for Jack to have died all those years ago, or to live only to be his greatest enemy, final words in the last panel are, Never the end. This awesome issue of Blackhawk uh, wasn't the end, though the end wouldn't be far off. Pretty much the same creative team on the next issue, telling an equally entertaining story. But if Giordano, Haney, Boyette, if they had any hope of saving the title, it was too late. Issue number 243 would be the last of Blackhawk for about eight years, marking uh, an astonishing, when you think about it, 27-year run of continuous publication for a pseudo-war comic with but for a minor, misguided, year-long blip, not a hint of spandex or capes. It's quite a historic run. As far as comics characters or groups who started publication in the 40s, the early 40s, to run right through to the late 60s, there's Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and Blackhawk. I think that's pretty much it. So after an eight-year hiatus, Blackhawk was revived by Jerry Conway, Steve Skeets, and a couple of different artists. Same numbering, but this was pretty much a reboot with the Blackhawks adventuring in the 70s with era-appropriate, question mark? Deep, deep v-neck suits. Hendrickson in a deep v-neck. <sighs> uh, this iteration of the team would only last a few issues, and then it was back into limbo for the Black Knights until the early 80s revival, still with that legacy numbering by Mark Evanier. Dan Spiegel. This is by far my favorite extended run of Blackhawk stories. Uh, and I know I'm not alone there. 
Evanir and Spiegel sensibly returned the knights to their time of greatest relevance, kick and butt in World War II. And that was about two years' worth of excellent adventure comics. Blackhawk would get completely revamped by the late 80s, as I think I mentioned earlier, by Howard Chaikin. That character had some success and provided a template for the character going forward for the next 20-plus years, but that version of the character should be within the purview of a different podcast, or at least a different episode of this one. I'm almost 100% sure, though, that it was a text piece by Evanier in the back of one of his issues that pointed me toward uh, this issue I talked about, number 242, but for the life of me, I could not find this text piece in preparation for this episode. Evanier mentioned the two issues done at the tail end of the 60s, drawn by Pat Boyette as, I think he used the words, top-notch. If anyone remembers where I could find this text piece based on these crappy clues, let me know. It's bugging me that I I couldn't find it in my back issues. Anyway, 242, uh, one of my favorites. Kind of a kitchen sink type issue. Big explosions, family drama, return to old costumes, the winter soldier, sword for an arm, freaking war wheel. It's so well drawn. This issue made me a Pat Boyette fan. His skills as a draftsman remind me of artists like Frank Thorne or Gray Morrow. They're absolutely impeccable, but he can exaggerate the features of people in effective ways, making good guys seem heroic and bad guys seem just that much more evil. So good. Some of his stuff reminds me of, uh, in a more contemporary artist, Dean Ormston, who his work on things like Lucifer and Books of Magic I, I really enjoyed. Now, if you're at all interested in the Blackhawks, I would definitely recommend seeking out this uncollected little gem. Definitely something I consider a high point of 1960s Blackhawk stories. I'll put up some of, of these great-looking Pat Boyette images on the show's blog, imthegun.blogspot.com. There you will find some contact info should you want to talk anymore Monsieur Machine, Golden Centurion, or The Leaper. Big thanks to some folks who helped on Twitter to push the last episode, which I spoke briefly about Carl Kiesel's mid-90s run on Daredevil. These people included Ascani's son, Michael Wagner, who wrote uh, such a great short run by Carl Kiesel and Carrie Nord. Bob Buster commented, I know, this was a great story, and I'm shocked they haven't done that by now, meaning collected that run. Brian Mulvey, Chris from Bat Books for Beginners, Chris Sheehan from the blog Chris's on Infinite Earths, Dave G, Dr. G, Man of Nerdology, Greg Arujo commented, here's hoping Marvel will get around to releasing these issues when season three of Daredevil rolls around. I'll go along with that. Joe Crawford commented, I love your Where's the Trade episodes. Stuff always ends up on my list. And I appreciate that, Joe. It's a great compliment. I definitely know the feeling. Cannot count the number of times uh, some podcast I've listened to directly influence my buying habits. Justice's First Dawn, Justin Carguth, Michael Mashey, Reggie from Cosmic Treadmill Podcast, Slang Word Resists, Snell, that's at Slay Monstrobot, Tom from the Brocast, and Darren and Ruth Sutherland from the Rad Network of Fine Podcasts. 
their comments on Twitter about the California raisins and a reference to Garbage Man relate to my soul-bearing story of a Halloween long ago when I'd made up my mind to dress as the Punisher, but my dad had other ideas and I ended up as a California raisin. So glad I was able to get that one off my chest. Uh, I got a nice comment on the blog from Justin. Justin wrote, uh, Your history with this Daredevil run, even the discovery of it, mirrors my own. I was often fascinated by Hornhead, but found earlier books too dark. Then I discovered issue 352, which takes place an issue before the start of this run. It is also a fun, if odd, one-shot sort of issue. While I don't disagree with your assessment that Kiesel's chunk of the series is light-hearted, it could also be brutal. Dee Dee was often in over his head. I can remember an issue featuring the Enforcers, where Kiesel goes into great detail over the injuries that a chained and beaten Dee Dee had suffered. I would love to see Kiesel and Nord on a series again. I think of them both as immense talents. This run made me a fan and made Daredevil my favorite character, but I don't collect the title or read it all that often. While I love this little pocket in time for the character, I find it has passed for most fans. They prefer Miller, Bendis, or Brubaker, and while I enjoy those runs, they simply can't hold a candle to this 12-issue arc for me. Silly as it might be, I find this similar to my love for Raphael of the Ninja Turtles. I absolutely love the Rob Paulson 80s cartoon take, but you won't find that little to anywhere else, and most diehard fans prefer the darker versions. So I also have a favorite turtle that I enjoy immensely and yet rarely seek out because most of the time the character is a stark contrast. Yeah, Justin, that's a great comparison between the treatment of Ninja Turtles and Daredevil, the way Daredevil's treatment has sort of oscillated between the light and the dark. And uh, I definitely agree with you. Carl Kiesel's run wasn't wall-to-wall humor. Uh, There were definitely some dark moments, and I guess I could have done a better job of pointing that out. But uh, thank you for writing. I want to reserve my biggest thanks, absolute biggest thanks possible to everyone for listening to the stuff I put out. Okay, next time out, it'll be time for what's become a bit of a Halloween tradition here at I'm the Gun. I'll be having a look at a story featuring that physician of phenomenology, that examiner of the ethereal, DC Comics' own oblivious objector, Dr. 13. All right, so until then, keep them flying. Mm-hmm.